Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. So I'm going to actually start by telling you the title of my message, and maybe it'll get you a little bit engaged and be a little bit like clickbait. You know what clickbait is? Where you, where you see a YouTube video and it has like in the thumbnail, uh, click here to see how you can become the next Johnny Cash, those kind of things. <laughs> so it's from failure to redemption, unlocking the secrets to a transformed life in Messiah Yeshua. From failure to redemption, unlocking the secrets to a transformed life in Messiah Yeshua. So today as we come together, I am reminded of how God weaves a beautiful tapestry through our lives. Using both, and this is going to be key to my message today. So he uses both of these two things. Our successes and our failures. Our successes and our failures. And what, is he, what does he use these for? He uses these to shape us into the people that he wants us to become. People that emulate Yeshua, that have a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father, and that speak life into this dark and secular world. So the message on my heart today is one that speaks to our journeys of both triumphs and failures, and to encourage introspection open dialogue, and a Holy Spirit-guided perspective. So to do that, we're going to have a pop quiz. <laughs> I'm a professor at the University of Oklahoma, so I'd like you to pull out something to write on, and the communique is good to write on. The communique is good to write on, and then you'll need a writing utensil like a pencil, and there should be a pencil in front of you. Don't worry, I'm just kidding. It's not a pop quiz. It's not a pop quiz. I just thought I'd get your attention. <laughs> so what I would like you to do if you have that available, something to write with and something to write on, is I would like you to consider a time that you failed. Consider a time that you failed. Consider a time that you failed. Write it down. Be specific. Write it down. Be specific. And I'll give you a moment to do that. Okay, and then I want you to write down a second thing. How did you overcome or move past that failure? How did you overcome or move past that failure? Write it down, be specific. Write it down, be specific. Okay, so we're going to come back to what you wrote down towards the end of the message. So I want you to save that. I want you to keep it in mind so that this isn't just some message from a book. The Bible isn't just a book. It's the living Word of God. 
So as we go through this message today, I want you to think about and consider that personal failure and how you came through it and how you can relate to the stories in Scripture so it can become part of your life. Let, it, let us be transformed by the truth today. So in this world that values perfection and measures worth by comparison, it's easy to see not measuring up, that missing the mark, those sins, those failures as obstacles that prevent us from making a kingdom impact rather than growth opportunities or learning experiences. We often see them as marks against us, moments of embarrassment that we'd rather forget or bury deep within ourselves. But what if I told you that our failures, those times when we didn't meet or live up to expectations, and I'm talking to myself, when I didn't meet or live up to God's expectations, those are moments in our lives that the Lord can use as catalyst for our spiritual growth and transformation. So to understand how God uses our failures to transform us, I want to start by looking at the life of Moses. He was a leader called by God, and he delivered his chosen people from slavery in Egypt. But although Moses is highly esteemed in Scripture, his journey began with a series of failures and feelings of inadequacy. And I don't know about you, but many times I felt inadequate. Like even coming up here to speak today, whenever I'm invited to speak, I'm like, Lord, I'm inadequate. Lord, I need your help. And the Holy Spirit's words come forth, and we can rely and rest in him. So he also continued to exhibit, Moses continued to exhibit these character flaws throughout his life. And those flaws are what God used to enhance Moses' leadership skills. So when we first meet Moses, he is a fugitive. He's hiding in the wilderness. He had fled from Egypt. Moses had just committed a grave mistake. He took justice into his own hands, and he murdered an Egyptian who was mistreating a Hebrew slave. Moses' impulsivity reveals a short temper that would resurface later in life. We see this when he breaks the tablets containing the Ten Commandments in Exodus 32. And when he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it as God commanded in Numbers 14. However, what I want to explore is how God used these experiences to educate and to spiritually develop Moses. What I want to explore is how God used these experiences to educate and spiritually develop Moses. God provided Moses with several opportunities to confront God's anger, to confront God's anger and appeal to his mercy. For instance, when the Israelites worshiped the golden calf, God didn't respond with compassion. How God responded is he appeared to Moses when he was on the mountain and he expressed his wrath. He expressed his intention to consume the people and to start a new nation with Moses. Yet, I think God knew how Moses was going to respond. I really think God was testing Moses. So yet Moses pleaded with the Lord, reminding him 
of his promises and appealing for mercy. So in this educational, and I would say ironic example, between God and Moses, Moses was given the opportunity to come face to face with anger. So based on Moses' early life, he might have agreed with God, given into a short temper, and even wanted God to consume the people. But Moses, however, responded in a godly manner, standing up to God's anger and appealing to his character. So we can see in Moses a matured and transformed heart. God took the short temper that the enemy meant for evil and to hinder Moses' spiritual development. But God didn't abandon or leave Moses. Instead, he used Moses. He uses humans just as they are. And he used that situation, that anger, as a catalyst to form a strong bond and relationship between Moses and himself. He used that anger, that short temper, to build a relationship between God and Moses. Furthermore, Moses interceded for the people on various occasions in the face of God's wrath. Another such instance was during the bad report incident when the Israelites refused to take possession of the land of Canaan in Numbers 14. Moses interceded, reminding God of his mercy and forgiveness and asking for pardon on behalf of the people. So these instances, they reveal growth and transformation in Moses as a leader. He transformed from a short-tempered murderer, someone who we would think, couldn't be used of the Lord in our human nature, in our human mindset, to someone who understood the importance of patience, mercy, and forgiveness. So through Moses' experiences, we learn that failures are not merely stumbling blocks, but opportunities for growth and transformation. They are occasions when God intervenes and he reveals the areas within us that require refinement. So as we surrender to the Lord's guidance and allow the Lord to work within us, we discover important lessons. And those are the lessons that cultivate humility, reliance on God, and the development of character traits that align with the Lord's will. So now let's turn our attention to a story that I think many of us know but are less familiar with. But it's another prominent figure in Scripture. King David. And King David is unique because he was known as a man after God's own heart. That's a title that I think we'd all like to have. A man or a woman after the Lord's own heart. So let's explore David. David's life was marked by both triumphs and failures. And it makes him a perfect example of how God can use our shortcomings to shape us. So David's journey begins in the humblest of settings, as a shepherd boy tending to his flock in the hills of Bethlehem. Little did he know that God had extraordinary plans for him. And in a dramatic turn of events, David was anointed by the prophet Samuel as the future king of Israel, a destiny that seemed unfathomable for a young shepherd. One of the most renowned episodes in David's life showcases his unwavering faith and his audacious courage. The towering figure Goliath, 
I think we all know the story of David and Goliath. So Goliath was a fearsome Philistine warrior and he taunted the armies of Israel. Yet, in an awe-inspiring display of trust in God, David stepped forward armed with nothing but a slingshot and a steadfast belief in God's power. And with a single well-aimed stone, he felled the giant and shattered the enemy's confidence. You know, the Lord is still shattering the enemy's confidence today. And he secured David a resounding victory for Israel. So David's triumph over Goliath elevated him to hero status and earned him favor and adoration among the people. However, however, even this remarkable victory could not shield David from the frailties of humanity and the deceit of the heart. His passions and desires, once his greatest strength, the strength to fell a giant like Goliath, led him down a dark and treacherous path. In a moment of moral weakness, David succumbed to temptation, and he engaged in an affair with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And Uriah was a loyal and honorable soldier in David's own army. When Bathsheba told David that she was pregnant, David took action to conceal his wrongdoing, to conceal the affair. David devised a reprehensible plot. He orchestrated Uriah's murder by intentionally planning his death on the battlefield and subsequently took Bathsheba to be his wife. So although David sinned in this egregious manner, and I think we can all agree that that really was an egregious manner, adultery and murder. Man after God's own heart committed adultery and murder. I want to focus on how God confronted David and how David responded to God's confrontation. In 2 Samuel 12, we read that the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan told a parable about a rich man who took a poor man's only beloved lamb to prepare a meal for a traveler. And this was to evoke an emotional response in the king. So then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished. It grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man. And the rich man refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are are the man. 
You are the man. And I think we can all think and reflect on a time in our own life where we were the man. We saw unrighteousness occur, but we were responsible for that unrighteousness. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversary against you from your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbors. And he shall lie with your wives at the side of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do things before all Israel before the sun. So David said to Nathan, And I like how quickly David responded. David didn't wait. He didn't go reflect or contemplate. He knew that what he had done was wrong. And he admitted it. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned before the Lord. And Nathan said to David, and this is just miraculous, how God responded to David. The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. And then I think we forget this next part, but it's critical. There's always consequences for sin. Even after the Lord forgives us, there are still consequences for our sin. And David did not escape the consequences. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. So we can see in the above that God confronted David through Nathan by revealing David's incessant passion, which he had festered into corruption of his power and position. David's response to the confrontation, however, was remarkable. He immediately confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. David recognized the gravity of his actions and the offense he had committed before God. And this episode in David's life highlights the importance of acknowledging our sins, my sins, and confessing them before God. Although God in his mercy forgave David, the consequences of his sin remained. David and Bathsheba's child died because of David's sin. In Psalm 51... David penned a heartfelt prayer of repentance, acknowledging his transgression and pleading for God's forgiveness. He earnestly sought to be cleansed and restored by God, recognizing his need for a renewed heart. So in Psalm 51, we read, and I want to just mention that during this time, if you go read uh, Samuel, 
He was fasting and praying and he was asking God to spare his child. That, that's, that's when he was writing this, the Psalm 51. So just imagine if it were your child and you were pleading to the Lord to spare your child, where your heart would be, your mind, your intentions. Reflect on that as we see how David responded in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. You will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praises, for you do not desire sacrifices. For you do not desire sacrifices, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God, and please pay attention to this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit, and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, and then they shall offer bulls on your altar. So through this episode in David's life, we witness God's redemptive work. Notice this. David committed adultery and murder. David committed adultery and murder. Yet God did not abandon David. God did not abandon David. So no matter what you've done today, God will not abandon you. He will not abandon you. So he did not abandon David in his brokenness, but extended grace and forgiveness. David's failure became a turning point in his journey and developed his spiritual growth and his humility. He learned firsthand the consequences of his actions and the depth of God's mercy. David's failure shaped him into a compassionate and empathetic king. 
He experienced the pain of his transgressions and sought to extend mercy and grace to others. We see this demonstrated in the midst of the turbulent events surrounding Absalom's rebellion. So Absalom was one of David's sons, was one of David's sons. The story of Absalom's betrayal of King David is a poignant tale that reveals the depths of David's compassion and the profound way that God transformed David's heart. The events unfold with a sense of treachery and deception. As Absalom cunningly manipulated the people, sowing seeds of discontent and paving the way for his rebellion. In 2 Samuel 15, Absalom begins his sinister plot by positioning himself as a champion of justice. He manipulates the people by telling them that they were in the right when they came up for justice in the court of his father, King David. So he was telling the people that they were right. He was tickling their ears, tickling their ears over their grievances, even when David would rule against them. But his true intentions lay in his desire to seize the throne. Absalom's plan was to overthrow King David, his father, and stage a coup. So when he felt he had enough support, he came to David for permission to go to Hebron to fulfill a vow. Only it wasn't to fulfill a vow, but instead to stage the coup. So in 2 Samuel 15, 10, we read, Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. So as Absalom's scheme takes shape, we read, A messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us. And strike the city with the edge of the sword. So now I would encourage you to go read the entire story for yourself. Because there are three more chapters of the story. Both of Absalom's rebellion and David's movements as he tries to avoid being killed. So that's 15, 16, and 17. 2 Samuel 15, 16, and 17. But to keep our focus on David's emotional response, I'm going to skip forward to chapter 18, where the battle against Absalom's forces occurs. So King David has to go to battle with his own son. His own son. So as the captains were preparing for battle with Absalom's forces, King David commanded Joab, Abishai, and Atai saying, and listen to this, listen to how he's talking about dealing with an enemy. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. He was concerned about them killing his son. His son had committed treason, staged a coup, had stolen the throne and the crown. But David still had compassion for his son. 
He loved his son. At the end of the chapter, the messenger says to David, May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. Upon hearing the message, David understood that his son Absalom was dead. And then the king wept and was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate, and as he wept, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So when Absalom's rebellion culminated in a tragic end on the battlefield, David's grief was genuine and profound. Instead of reveling in the demise of his treacherous son, David mourned his loss, the loss of a child who had turned against him. The authentic sorrow speaks volumes about the enduring love David harbored for Absalom, surpassing the bounds of betrayal. It reveals the complexity of David's emotion as he simultaneously grappled, and he really did grapple with both of these elements, the consequences of Absalom's actions while harboring a deep and abiding love for his son. So David's response to Absalom's betrayal serves as a powerful example of forgiveness and mercy. And this is what is amazing in how God uses our lives to spiritually cultivate us. Just as God, just as God forgave David for the murder of Uriah and stealing his wife Bathsheba for adultery and murder, God gave David the opportunity to forgive and mourn for his rebellious son. David's ability to extend grace to his son, despite the personal cost he endured, showcases the transformative power of God. Absalom's betray betrayed David similarly to how David betrayed God by abusing his authority as king. God tested and cultivated David's hearts through the treason of Absalom, and David demonstrated his transformed heart by responding with compassion. And I believe this is what earned David the title of a man after God's own heart. That love, that compassion for his son. So now how does this relate to us? How can we use this today? Well, as people of God, we often make mistakes and fail. But rarely do we want to acknowledge that failure and accept the transformative power of God. The power of God to change our heart intentions. To receive the transformative power from God, we must follow examples showcased from Moses and David. So I like uh, the rabbi, like list. So today and now is the list portion of the sermon. So each of the following five steps, each of the following five steps is crucial in experiencing the transformative power of God and allowing God to shape us into the people he created us to be. Before I get into these, this isn't one of my five points, but it's important as, a, as an initial step to understand. 
God created you. God created you. You were made in the image of the Lord. God didn't make a mistake when he made you. God isn't sorry that he made you. God has a purpose for your life. So as I go through these points about having a transformed heart, the goal of having a transformed heart isn't just to like feel good about yourself. It's because God made you with a specific purpose. God wants to have that relationship with you in the image and the purpose that he designed you for. So when we have that transformed heart, we can have a deeper and more meaningful relationship with our Heavenly Father who loves us unconditionally. Step one. Step one. We must acknowledge our sins and failures before the Lord. We must acknowledge our sins and failures before the Lord. We must acknowledge our sins and failures before the Lord. So the first step toward transformation is humbling ourselves before God and acknowledging our sins. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, did you notice that there's an action that we must do? There's an action that we must do. We must confess our sins before the Lord. We must confess our sins before the Lord. Earlier in the message, I was talking about how we like to forget our failures. Forget our failures. Well, if we forget and hide our failures from ourselves, what are we doing? We're deceiving ourselves. And who does that hurt? Does that hurt God? No. It hurts us. It hurts us. We shouldn't sin to please the Lord, but we also shouldn't sin because sin hurts us. God loves us and knows what's best for us. That's why he wants us to confess our sins before him so that he can work and transform our hearts. So we are encouraged to bring our failures and shortcomings before God knowing that he is ready to forgive and cleanse us. And scripture also warns us about the deceitfulness of our own hearts and the need for the Holy Spirit's conviction and guidance. In Jeremiah 17:9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord can know it. The Lord can know it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? We might not know it because we're deceived. But the Lord is not deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. So our natural inclination is to pursue our own rebellious ways. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have a heart transformed. The Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in exposing our sins, flaws, and failures. Yeshua promised in John 16, 8, and we can trust in the Lord's promises. The Lord keeps his promises. He hasn't failed yet, and I don't think he's going to start now, and he's not going to start with you. John 16, 8 says, 
And when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts us our sins, making us aware of our need for transformation. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do this to shame us. He does this because he loves us. God loves us and wants us to live a full and joyful life. So we must be cautious of falling into the trap of self-righteousness and contentment to live an ungodly life. Proverbs 16.2 reminds us, All the ways of a man may be pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. The Lord weighs the spirits. And if you don't know what that means, and I wasn't quite sure what that meant either, so I went to the NIV translation, and, and they translated in the NIV, Motives are weighed by the Lord. Motives are weighed by the Lord. Motives are weighed by the Lord. So you might think you have a certain motive. You might believe you have a certain motive. Well, what did we just learn? The heart is deceitful. The Lord, God, weighs our motives. It is essential to ask And this is another action here. To ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. To expose any hidden sins or any evil or bad intentions and motives. And to reveal our motives and intentions as they really are. For our own benefit. So by acknowledging our sins and relying on the conviction of the Holy Spirit... And recognizing the deceitfulness of our own hearts, we can come before God with humility, seeking his forgiveness and transformation. The journey of transformation begins with honesty and openness before our Heavenly Father. Begins with honesty and openness before our Heavenly Father, who lovingly invites us to experience his redemption and transformative power. Number two, number two, we are to recognize the need for a transformed heart through Yeshua. Point number two is we are to recognize the need for a transformed heart through Yeshua. Recognize the need for a transformed heart through Yeshua. So transformation begins with recognizing our need for a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, God promises. So this again is a promise from our Lord. And he fulfills his promises. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. That's the Holy Spirit. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Through Yeshua we can receive a new heart. Free from the bondage of sin and filled with his spirit, the Holy Spirit. So recognizing our need for a transformed heart involves despising our transgressions. And this again is an action. Despising our transgression in wicked ways and embracing a love for obeying the Lord. Psalm 97.10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. We must develop a genuine hatred for sin and a deep desire to live in obedience to God's commands. 
It is crucial to dispel, because I, I hear this all the time. And I definitely hear this with people who aren't believers and who live or come from different cultures. So at the university, I deal with students from all over the world coming from different cultures. And there's this prevailing myth in the society that obedience to the Lord is robotic or conformist. That is what I hear frequently. That obedience to the Lord is robotic or conformist. Robotic or conformist. In reality, obedience brings freedom and liberation from the common sins that plague humanity. So the enemy has turned this on its head. Sin, sin is conformist. Sin is robotic. Sin is robotic and conformist. But we have freedom in obedience to the Lord. Galatians 5.1 declares, Stand fast therefore in the liberty which Messiah has made us free, and do not be entangled with a yoke of bondage. So other translations translate this, Stand fast therefore in the freedom for which Christ has made you free. What does that mean? Christ has made us free so that we can be free. He wants us to be free from the bondage of sin, from the conformity of sin, from the plague of sin, from the robotic nature of sin. So through obedience to God's word, we break free from the chains of common addictions and sinful habits and destructive behaviors like drugs, alcohol, pornography, etc., Embracing our uniqueness in God comes through obeying him and experiencing the freedom to be who he designed us to be. Did you know that God made you unique? God didn't tell you to be like somebody else. He told you to be like one person, one person only, Yeshua. And in being like Yeshua, we can express who we truly are. A unique image of him. So our common struggles with sins such as hatred, jealousy, lust, and addictions remind us of our need for a transformed heart. Did you hear that? Did you catch that? Our common struggles with sins such as hatred, jealousy, lust, and addictions, they're not to destroy us, but to remind us of our need for a transformed heart. Romans 12, 2 encourages us, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that's good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As we allow Yeshua to renew our minds and transform our hearts, we experience true freedom and the ability to fully embrace our identity in him. Recognizing our need for a transformation and understanding the freedom that comes through a renewed heart in Yeshua enables us to walk in his statutes and experience the abundant life he has for us. Embracing the transforming power of Yeshua allows us to live in obedience, love, and joy. Freeing us from the bondage of sin and enabling us to fulfill our unique purpose in our Messiah. 
Okay, point three. Point three. Point three. Have faith in the redemptive and restorative power of Yeshua. Have faith in the redemptive and restorative power of Yeshua. Have faith in the redemptive and restorative power of Yeshua. And if you want shorthand or a summary of what that means, Yeshua can and will change your heart if you ask him. Yeshua can and will change your heart if you ask him. He's not going to abandon you, forsake you. He's not going to say, no, I changed everybody else's heart, but I'm not changing yours. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. So it is not enough for us to recognize the need for a changed heart, but we must also have faith that Yeshua can free us from bondage of sins and failures. Our failures are not the end of the story. Your failures are not the end of the story, but they're the beginning. They're the beginning. Yeshua's sacrifice on the cross offers redemption and restoration. Redemption and restoration is the beginning of the story. We want to grow in our relationship with Yeshua. But that starts with redemption and restoration. Having faith in the redemption and restorative power of Yeshua involves laying our sins and failures at the foot of the cross and allowing his grace to free us from guilt and judgment. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 emphasizes the role of faith in our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a free gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are saved by grace through faith in Yeshua. Our salvation is a gift from God, not something we can earn. 2 Corinthians 5.17 also declares, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He didn't say some things have become new. He said all things have become new. And that's what he's promising for your life. That's what he's promising for your life. All things have become new. But how do they become new? Through faith in Yeshua, we become new creations, no longer defined by our past sinful nature, but vessels being handcrafted by the Lord for good works and righteousness. So one, one notable example of someone who experienced the redemption and restoration after his failures is Peter. Is Peter. Peter was very close with the Lord. But he had significant failures and he experienced the redemptive power of the Lord. When Peter denied Yeshua three times before his crucifixion, Peter was deeply ashamed. He was so ashamed, in fact, that he returned to his former occupation as a fisherman. He gave up. He gave up. He went back to his former occupation as a fisherman. However, Yeshua did not leave him in that state. Yeshua, after his resurrection, restored Peter to his ministry role. In John 21, Yeshua asked Peter three times if he loves him, mirroring the three times Peter denied Yeshua. Through this interaction, Yeshua affirms Peter's love and predicts that his heart will be profoundly transformed 
transformed from someone that would deny Yeshua to avoid possible consequences. If he hadn't denied him, he might have died as well. But he predicts that Peter's heart will be profoundly transformed and will no longer deny the Lord, but would willingly embrace martyrdom for the sake of the Messiah. In summary, having faith in the redemptive and restorative power of Yeshua allows us to embrace the truth that our past failures do not define us. Through his sacrifice, Yeshua's sacrifice, we are justified, saved, and transformed into new creations. We can trust in Yeshua's intercession, knowing that he is continually working on our behalf. Let us have unwavering faith in the redemptive power of Yeshua and embrace his restoration. He offers us a chance to walk in confidence and be vessels that are molded by him for his purposes. Point number four. Point number four. Point number four of five. We must be willing to truly change. We must be willing to truly change. We must be willing to truly change. Truly change. What do I mean? We can't just say we're going to change. We can't just say we're going to change. It doesn't work that way. We can't just say to the Lord, okay, Lord, I'm going to let you change me, but I'm going to be mentally detached. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and if you're going to change me, you're going to do it. I'm not responsible. I'm not responsible. It don't work that way. It don't work that way. So be willing to truly change. So we must be willing to actually change and not make excuses. And not make excuses to avoid transformation. It is really common for people to resist change. I have myself several times throughout my life resisted change. Resisted change. And people do this, and I do this, by offering excuses. And these are various excuses that I've heard people tried, and I've tried myself. I tried changing before and failed. I tried changing before and failed. I tried changing before and failed. So God must be okay with who I am because I tried. I tried. I'm off the hook. God must be okay with who I am because I tried. Number two, the second excuse is I don't want to change. I'm fine just the way I am. I don't want to change. If the Lord wanted me to change, he'd give me a desire to change. I'd have this inner desire to change. So I don't need to to change because God would give me that inner desire to change if he wanted me to change. So I'm fine just the way I am. Or the third excuse, other people like me the way I am. So why should I change? Other people like me the way I am. So why should I change? And why should I change to be more like Yeshua? I want to be more like me. So these are excuses and tactics. And and it's not always that blatant. It's not always that blatant. But those are the kind of excuses that we can make internally. And those hinder 
our spiritual growth and hinder the work that God desires to do in us. In 1 James 22, James declares, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This verse highlights the importance of actively pursuing transformation rather than settling for a complacent and stagnant life. If you're at a stagnant place in your life right now, the Lord doesn't want you there. The Lord wants you to be a doer of the word and escape that stagnancy. Mere acknowledgement of our need for change without taking action is insufficient. We are called to actively live out our faith, allowing the transformation to manifest in our thoughts, words, and actions. Thoughts, words, and deeds. Thoughts, words, and deeds. Thoughts, words, and deeds. To be doers of the word, we must first meditate on the word. Have it in our mind and in our hearts. So one biblical example of someone who experienced a genuine willingness to change is the Apostle Paul. Before his encounter with Yeshua on the road to Damascus, Paul vehemently persecuted the early believers. However, his encounter with Yeshua transformed him, and he became one of the greatest champions of the faith. In Acts 9-6, when Yeshua appeared to Saul, he said, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. He could have responded and said, No, I'm not going to go do that. They're going to make fun of me, and who knows what they'll do to me. Instead, he obeyed. Saul's willingness to obey and change his ways led to a radical transformation and a lifelong commitment to following Yeshua. So to summarize, being willing to truly change requires letting go of excuses and actively pursuing transformation. We are called to align our thoughts, words, and actions with the teachings of our Messiah and allowing the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. Just as Paul and many other biblical figures embrace change and experience transformation, we too can experience the fullness of life that comes from yielding to God's transformative work in our hearts. Point number five. Point number five of five. Point number five of five. We must adopt a lifestyle that prioritizes God and others before ourselves. So number five is what is the greatest and most important commandment? To love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We must adopt a lifestyle that prioritizes God and others before ourselves. So what does this mean? And what does this look like, prioritizing God and others before ourselves? This means reading scripture, praying, and having a heart intention. Having a heart intention to put others before yourself. And before myself, too. The common attitudes of wanting to, and these are common attitudes. This is, these are things to be introspective about. And there's four of them. There's the common attitude of wanting to look good, 
wanting to look good. There's the common attitude of wanting to feel good. Of wanting to feel good. There's the common attitude of wanting to be right. To be right. And there's the common attitude of wanting to be in control. Be in control. When we have these common attitudes, these common attitudes, we, they reflect that we're being self-focused and having a self-focused mindset. And having a self-focused mindset is contrary to the transformative work of God in our lives. So all sins can be categorized into one of these four selfish attitudes. So examining the stories of Moses, David, and Peter, we can see how they at times were self-focused and that self-focused attitudes hindered their spiritual growth until they experienced a transformed heart. And hopefully by looking at these, we can see and, and how the Lord is working within our own hearts and can transform us. So in the story of Moses, we see that he acted impulsively. And he was seeking to feel good and self-righteous and in control. And that's what led him to murder an Egyptian and flee Egypt. However, after his encounter with God at the burning bush and his subsequent obedience to God's calling, Moses underwent a transformation and he became a humble servant of God. Similarly, King David's pursuit of feeling good and looking good led him to commit adultery with Bathsheba and to have her husband, Uriah, killed, murder and adultery. These actions were driven by selfish desires and a desire to save face, a desire to save face. However, when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, we saw that David repented and experienced God's forgiveness, leading to his restoration in a transformed heart. And then Peter too, we saw how he struggled with a self-focused, mindset and a desire for control. After Yeshua's crucifixion, Peter returned to fishing. He chose the comfortable and familiar way of his former life instead of pursuing his calling. However, when Yeshua appeared to him after his resurrection and reinstated him, Peter's heart was transformed and he became a bold disciple willing to give up his life for the sake of the gospel. So transformation involves a shift in our priorities and attitudes. Yeshua teaches in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and that this is the great and first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are called to prioritize our relationship with God and to love others selflessly. This selfless love is further emphasized in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, which exhorts us, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done in selfish ambition or conceit. What is that telling us to do? We have to analyze our motives. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal our motives to us. To do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. 
So as followers of Yeshua, we are called to live a life of selflessness and love, putting God and others before ourselves. This requires a transformation of our attitudes and priorities. We are to align those with the teachings of Yeshua through prayer, studying scripture, and yielding to the Holy Spirit's work within us, we can experience a renewed heart and a lifestyle that reflects God's love to the world. In conclusion, let us recap the five crucial steps towards transformation and a life aligned with God's purposes. These steps are not merely theoretical. These aren't just theory but practical guidelines for real change and restoration in our lives. Take note of each of the points and consider how it can apply to your journey. Number one, to recap, acknowledge your sins and failures before the Lord. Acknowledge your sins and failures before the Lord. Acknowledge your sins and failures before the Lord. Understand that he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Don't let pride hinder your repentance. Instead, humble yourself and bring your failures before the Lord. Number two, recognize the need for a transformed heart. Recognize your need for a transformed heart through Yeshua. Recognize your need for a transformed heart through Yeshua. Yeshua offers us a new heart, free from the bondage of sin and filled with the Holy Spirit. Embrace the truth that you need his transformative power to bring about lasting change. Number three, have faith in the redemptive and restorative power of Yeshua. Have faith in the redemptive and restorative power of Yeshua. His sacrifice on the cross offers us salvation and the opportunity to become new creations in him. Believe that your failures do not define you, but through Yeshua, you can experience his redemption and restoration. Number four, be willing to truly change. Be willing to truly change. Leave behind the excuses and complacency that hinder transformation. Leave them behind. Leave them behind. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. They only hurt you. Instead, actively pursue a transformed life by yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit within you. Instead, actively pursue a transformed life by yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit within you. And finally, number five. Adopt a lifestyle that prioritizes God and others before yourself. Adopt a lifestyle that prioritizes God and others before yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Shift your focus from selfish ambitions to selfless acts of service and genuine care and love for others. So now I want you to pull out your paper that we filled out at the beginning. The paper that we filled out at the beginning where I asked you to consider a a time that you failed and write it down, be specific. And the second was, how did you overcome or move past that failure? Be specific. 
That's what we did towards the beginning of the service. So this is homework. This is homework. Now I want you to look back at the failure and the resolution you wrote down earlier. I invite you to reflect. And this is why it's homework. You're going to have to spend some time with the Lord reflecting. Reflect on how God used that failure to shape your life. Reflect on how God used that failure to shape your life. And I would encourage you to write it down and be specific. And I would also encourage you to be open to what the Lord has to say about that experience. What the Holy Spirit stirs within you. And now finally, if you find yourself without a personal relationship with Yeshua today, I invite you to take a step forward. It's time to go beyond mere knowledge and religious practice. Cry out to Yeshua. Ask him to reveal himself to you in a personal way. He is the only way to inherit eternal life. And he longs to meet you right where you're at. He longs to meet you. Reach out your hand. Reach out your hand. So don't let this moment pass you by. Embrace the opportunity for a life-changing encounter with your Savior who loves you unconditionally. Remember that your failures are not the end of the story. Your failures are not the end of the story. If you're going through a failure right now in your life, it is not the end of the story, but rather an opportunity for a new beginning with Yeshua. It's an invitation to repent, to transform, and to live a life of purpose in our Messiah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your redemptive work on the cross. We thank you that you loved each one of us so much that you would have died for just one person. Thank you, Lord, for laying down your life for the world so that we no longer have to walk in bondage to sin but can embrace the freedom that you offer, the freedom that comes only through faith and trust in Yeshua the Messiah. I pray, Lord, if anyone doesn't know you here today, if anyone doesn't have a personal relationship with you, that you convict their hearts. You reveal to them their sins and failures and why they need you. Why they need to cry out to you. Why they need to long for you. Why they need to have a personal relationship with you. Lord, if they have questions, don't let them leave this sanctuary with those questions unanswered. Help them to ask the questions they need to ask. To make the commitment they need to make. So that they can live a renewed and fulfilling life through your son, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. Lord, today, if anybody is burdened with sin, burdened with a failure, that they have not laid down at your feet, laid down at the cross, I invite them today to do so. Lord, help them. Help them to humble themselves before you. And if that requires them to address a grievance they have with a brother or a sister or a spouse. Lord, let dialogue be open. Let doors be open so that relationships can be restored and that each person can experience the freedom by which you have made us free.
Lord, thank you for our unique and individual purposes. Thank you for making us in your image. And thank you for the awe-inspiring sacrifice that you, who is perfect, made for us who are imperfect. We pray these things in the name and merit of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.